Now, Lord, we ask for favor, just as you gave favor so many years ago to this this young woman to conceive and bear a son. Lord, we're asking similarly for favor to open up the riches of what you have shown us in this text, that it would be applied to our lives. The Lord, you would transform us and change us. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to embrace the living Lord Jesus Christ today. In his name, amen. Mary was privileged to receive what was probably the greatest message ever delivered to any human being. Can you think of any more significant message than for God to say that he was going to come into his world as a man for the purpose of saving mankind? But that is basically the message that Gabriel the angel gave to Mary. And that's the message that we get to explore this morning. Now, last Sunday morning, we talked about the angel Gabriel coming to a different person. This person was Zacharias. Zacharias was an elderly priest. And as he was ministering in the temple, about to burn incense before the altar of incense, there in his right-hand side suddenly stood this angel. And Zacharias was frightened. And the angel says, don't be frightened, Zacharias, because you are going to have a son. His name's going to be John, and he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or strong liquor, and he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he goes on to say, and he is going to turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their sons, and the hearts of the sons to their fathers, and many will rejoice in his birth. Well, Zacharias didn't immediately believe the message of that angel, did he? In fact, he didn't believe. He, he needed some more proof. He needed something, a sign, so that he would know for sure that what the angel had said would actually come to pass. And so as a judgment upon him, the angel Gabriel smote him with muteness. He could no longer speak, and he could no longer hear for the next nine months. Well... Fast forward six months, the same angel comes to another person, delivers another message, even of greater significance than the first one. And as we move through the text today, we're going to look at Gabriel's salutation, Gabriel's information, Gabriel's explanation, Gabriel's attestation, and Mary's resignation. Isn't that cool? They all have four syllables. They all end with shun. I love it. This is the craft of developing sermons, folks. <laughs> anyway, Gabriel's salutation, verses 26 to 30. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, and she kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now let's take that section this morning. The, the angel's salutation. A salutation is a greeting. So he comes in and he greets 
this woman. First of all, notice the timing of this salutation. It was in the sixth month. Well, the sixth month of what? If we back up and take a look at the context, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Zacharias and Elizabeth were this elderly couple. She was too old to bear children, but miraculously she conceived. And it says there in verse 24 that she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the day when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So for five months, she shut herself up in seclusion, probably because she knows that there's no way she's going to be around her friends and relatives and not be able to spill the beans that she's going to have a baby. She had longed to have this child for years and years. In fact, she and her husband, Zacharias, had prayed again and again. The angel says, the Lord has heard your petition. So they had been praying for a child. And now they figured it was just... No use. They were, they were too old. It's just not going to happen. But here she becomes pregnant, and she knows if she's around her family or her relatives or her friends, she's just going to, she can't keep that inside. It's just too big of a joy in her heart. So she keeps herself in seclusion for five months. And in the sixth month, it says, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The timing is in the sixth month. The messenger is identified as the angel Gabriel. This is the very same angel that came to Zacharias. And interestingly, do you remember how many uh, angels have names in the Bible? Two. Do you know how many angels there are? Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Probably in the millions. Two of them are given names in the Bible. Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel is one of those great angels of the Lord. Michael is kind of like a super warrior. When there's a fight to be had, Michael's on the front lines battling the forces of darkness. But Gabriel is not so much a fighter. Gabriel's a messenger. He brings the messages, and especially messages connected to the birth of the Messiah. 500 years earlier, in Daniel chapter 9, he brought a message to Daniel the prophet. And this message had to do with when the Messiah would come into the world. And he gives this very involved, complicated prophecy about 70 weeks divided into 7 weeks and 62 weeks and then one more week. And if you add all these weeks up, this is the timeline wherein they can expect their Messiah to come into the world. But again, notice that his message to Daniel had to do with when the Messiah would come. 500 years later, he appears again. And what does he say? He talks to Zacharias And he gives him a message about when the Messiah's forerunner would be brought into the world. Six months later, he appears again. His message is to Mary, and she is going to be the one who brings the Messiah himself, the Son of God, into the world. And there are two other occasions where an angel will appear to somebody related to the birth of Christ. One is in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel appears to Joseph. Joseph was going to put uh, Mary away secretly. He didn't want to disgrace her. He loved her. But he felt that she had been unfaithful to him because she was with child. And so he was going to put her away until an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, don't do it. Don't put her away because that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. My hunch is that was Gabriel. 
The Bible doesn't tell us, but every other time when it has to do with something surrounding the details of the birth of Jesus, Gabriel's the angel that shows up. There's one other time. Luke chapter 2. Do you remember some angels who are watching their flock by night and suddenly the angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord shines around them? It's my hunch that was Gabriel as well. And I love his message. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I bring to you tidings of good news of great joy. So this is the messenger. This great angel of God. This messenger of God. In fact, the word angel means messenger. So this messenger of God comes to bring this glorious message. Notice the place of the salutation. He was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. He comes from God. Let's just meditate on that a moment. If you go back to verse 19, Gabriel says to Zacharias, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Just to say that gives me chills. I mean, try to imagine yourself in Gabriel's position, standing in the immediate glorious presence of God. What must that be like, folks? Well, I mean, we're going to be there one day. We're going to experience this. But Gabriel experienced that hundreds of years before any of us are going to experience it. He came from God, the immediate presence of the Almighty, the Most High. But then it says, he came to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, what do we know about Nazareth? Not a whole lot. It was an obscure little village. They called it uh, Nazareth of Galilee. And Galilee was somewhat associated with the Gentiles because it was sort of on the border between Israel and the Gentile countries around it. And so because of that, it was a despised little hick place. Remember, Nathaniel said to Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So it had this reputation of, of being not kind of an unsavory place to be. Isn't it interesting to contrast the place where the angel came first and then the place where the angel came second? He comes to Zacharias. What's the city? It's Jerusalem. The capital city of Israel. The religious center for the Jews. He comes to Mary and it's this poor little hovel, the home of this peasant girl. When he comes to Jerusalem, where is it that he comes in Jerusalem? It's the temple. And it's not just any place. It's the holy place in the temple, right there at the right-hand side of the golden altar of incense. When he comes to this girl, it's just a home. A poor, humble home. When he comes the first time, he comes to a man. The second time is to a woman. The first time is to an elderly, revered, venerated man, a priest, a respectable man. The second time he comes to an unknown, obscure, probably young teenage girl, poor, poor family, poor parents. And it just shows me that we're almost seeing in parable uh, that when Jesus comes the first time, he's going to be coming in humiliation. He's going to be coming condescending. It's going to be a lowly coming his first time around. Jesus, in fact, he said of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. 
and all of his people, if we are to follow this one, will be meek and lowly in heart as well. We'll be willing to be humble servants of the king. So there we have, in verse 26, the timing, the messenger, and the place of the salutation. Now notice in verse 27, we have the recipient. Who did he bring this message to? Verse 27 says, It was to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now we're told four things about this girl, this recipient who received the message. We're told, number one, she was a virgin. Number two, she was engaged. Number three, she was a descendant of David. And number four, her name. Her name is Mary. Now, first of all, she was a virgin. This is probably the most important detail about this girl. She was a virgin. That reminds us that back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the prophet had said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Here is the fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet, his prophecy, 700 years prior. So the angel comes to a virgin, never having known a man, and he tells that virgin she is going to bear a son. Now let's think for a minute. Let's put on our theological caps for a minute. Why was it important that Mary be a virgin to bring the Son of God into the world? Is there a theological significance to the virgin birth? Is there a reason why we must hold on to the virgin birth and not cast it aside? And I would believe there is. I'm going to give you two reasons. I want you to be Bereans this morning. I want you to test what I say. And if you think it's of the Lord, hold fast to it. If you don't, we can talk about that and you can challenge me on it. I'm going to give you two suppositions, two suggestions, theological suggestions of why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Number one, so that he would not inherit Adam's guilt. You see, Adam stood as the federal head and representative of all those who would be born of him. When Adam sinned, he incurred the curse, didn't he? But he didn't just incur the curse for himself as an individual. He incurred that curse for the human race. That's why when we come over to Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21, Paul makes a parallel between Adam and Christ. And he says, just as in Adam, we have condemnation, we have judgment, and we have death, so also we have this second Adam, and we have righteousness, we have life, and we have justification through him. What he's saying there is that Adam is a representative for all those who are descended from him physically, naturally. So, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, let's say Joseph was his father, Mary was his mother, I believe that what we have from that situation is that Jesus is going to incur the guilt of Adam because he's brought into the world from Adam in the normal human way. He incurs that same guilt. Folks, that's why infants and unborn children die. It's because the curse of Adam, the sin of Adam is imputed to them. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But... 
An unborn child or an infant has never made any conscious decision to sin. So how can it be, how can it be that these babies or these unborn babies will die? I believe the answer is that Adam's guilt has been counted to them. Now, before you say, well, that's not fair, you know, we had nothing to do with what Adam did. If you want to throw that out of the water, you're also going to have to throw out the grace of God because we are counted righteous in the very same way that we are counted unrighteous. It's through two different men, two different representatives. And so if Jesus is brought into the world without a virgin mother... He's going to have the guilt of Adam put upon him. He's going to be a sinner himself. He's going to be under condemnation himself. And the second reason, I believe, that Jesus had to be born of a virgin was so that he would not inherit Adam's corruption. Not only Adam's guilt, his bad record, but his corruption, his bad heart. What I mean by that is a sinful nature. And do you realize that all of us are born into this world with a propensity and an inclination towards sin. We have a heart that loves sin. From the moment we're conceived in the womb, we go astray, the Bible says, speaking lies. And so, if Jesus was to be born of a natural father and a natural mother, not only would he inherit Adam's guilt, he would inherit corruption, a bad heart. He would be born with a sinful nature. Remember, as soon as Adam fell... He was corrupted in every faculty of his soul. His body, his mind, his emotions, his will, through and through, pervasively, radically pervasively, he was corrupted. And when he had a child, although the Bible says that Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, in Genesis chapter 5 it says when he had a son, that son was created in Adam's image after Adam fell. So what does Adam have to transmit to his son? A fallen, sinful nature. And that's why all of our kids are sinners. It's because we're sinners. And we passed it on to them, and they're going to pass it on to their kids. Jesus is the only one who ever broke that chain because he didn't have a natural father through which that corruption could be transmitted. Isn't that good news? We have a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, so that he could be that perfect and holy one. So, the recipient is a virgin. Secondly, she was engaged. Now, literally, if you were to look at the, uh, the Greek here, the word is betrothed. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And we don't really know what betrothed is all about anymore because we don't see it in our culture today. But this is how marriage would work in the first century. Oftentimes, marriage was arranged by the parents. And oftentimes, the children could not even be born yet. Uh, One set of parents would know the other set of parents, and they would say, well, my wife's pregnant, and your wife's pregnant. Why don't we just decide ahead of time that if you have a girl and we have a boy, or if we have a girl and you have a boy, that they'll marry someday. Sometimes it was before they were born. Sometimes it was when they were very young, like two or three years old. And the parents would make a decision ahead of time which children uh, would marry which children. So they were engaged, say at two years old. But then a year before the actual consummation of marriage was to take place, they would be betrothed. And a betrothal is when you would take a young man and a young woman, and they would pledge themselves to each other, and it was a binding legal commitment so that they couldn't just break this 
thing off. Now, the, the New American Standard calls this an engagement. But that's not good because in our culture, engagement means you can just walk away from that and there's no, there's no consequences. But in that culture, you couldn't do that. If you walked away from this relationship, you had to get a, uh, a divorce because it was a legally binding agreement, even though the two persons had not come together and consummated that relationship. Well, then a year after the betrothal period, they would come together as man and wife and they would live together and they would consummate that relationship sexually. So here we're told that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. We're also told that she was a descendant of David. It was important for her son to be a descendant of David if he was to be given the throne of his father, David. Jesus had to be a son of David, and that's one of the favorite titles we read people ascribing to him in the Gospels. They called him the son of David. Well, that was important because there had been promises made to David that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne. 2 Samuel 7.12 says this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So there's the promise. A descendant of David will be raised up, and God is going to give to that descendant the throne of David. Now, notice the salutation itself. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And what does it say Mary did? She was very perplexed, and she kept pondering what this salutation might mean. And I can understand why. Her, her salutation was so abrupt, wasn't it? It's not like the angel came to her and said, uh, Mary, don't be frightened about me. I know I'm shining. That's because I'm an angel. And I've come from the direct presence of God. And God has had favor upon you because he wants me to give you a message. And this is what the message is going to be about. You're going to have a son. And God is with you. And his grace is upon you. You know, kind of round it out a little bit. He just kind of blurts out the message. Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. <laughs> and then later on, uh, verse 30, he again says that she is favored by God. Twice he mentions the fact that Mary is favored. In what sense was Mary favored? She was favored because God had chosen her out of all the millions of the girls that could have been chosen to be the one woman who would bring into the world the Son of God. What a favor. In fact, it's said that every young Jewish girl would grow up hoping that maybe I could be the one that, through whom the Lord would bring the Messiah. Well, Mary was that one chosen of God. Very, very favored. And her response is, she's perplexed. She ponders what this might mean. Now, why would Mary ponder what this might mean when he said, God has favored you to bring his son into the world? My hunch is that Mary knows that she's a sinner, just like everybody else. And she's amazed that God would choose her out of all the girls to be the one through whom he'd bring the, give this great blessing of bringing his son into the world. That's my take on it. I, I think she was blown away at God's goodness and favor upon her to do this great thing. So there we have Gabriel's salutation. Let's look at Gabriel's information. 
What did this message consist of? What was the information he imparted? Well, Gabriel succinctly imparts to Mary the whole truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ in just a few words. Notice what he says, starting in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. I believe here what we're seeing is the humanity of Jesus. If you look at the person of Christ, it consists of two things, his humanity and his deity, and both are revealed by the angel. First, the humanity. You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. In other words, Mary, this will be a child that you will give birth to. This child will come from you. This child will share the genes and the chromosomes that you have. Genetically, he will be tied to you. I'm sure that Jesus physically looked like Mary in certain respects because he came forth from her, from her very womb. And so... His humanity is shown here. He's going to come from Mary. He's going to be a true man, a real man. Did you know that it is vital that we believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ? Did you know that's a vital Christian doctrine? It's a vital Christian doctrine that we believe that. I want to quote to you from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is what John says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Did you hear that? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, that spirit is is from God. That prophecy is true. But if that person says, no, Jesus has not come in the flesh, and there was a group of people in the first century that were saying, Jesus is not a real human being. That he's God and just appeared as a man, but it wasn't a real person. No, Jesus is real man, just like we are real human beings. Do you know why it was important that the Son of God had also to be the Son of Man? Could he redeem for sinners if he wasn't a man himself? Remember that Adam is a real man and Adam was the representative of those born of him. Jesus also had to be a real man so that he could be a representative to redeem those born of him. You have two representative heads. A real man fell. If God is to restore fallen Sinners, a a fallen race of sinners, he's got to do it through another real man to restore them back to the condition that they had in paradise before the fall. So Jesus' humanity is absolutely essential. We must believe that as a church. But not only is that true, we're also told about his deity. Notice what he says. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, the Most High. What is that all about? What does it mean? It must mean the one who is higher than everybody else, right? 
You can't get any higher than the most high. This is an expression used frequently throughout the scripture for God Almighty. This will be the son of the most high, the supreme one, the sovereign one over all things. So Jesus Christ is called here the son of the most high. And then in verse 35, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, there it is again, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called what? The Son of God. The Son of God. Now, a son shares the same nature with his father, doesn't he? They're both human beings. A toad does not have the same nature as a horse, right? A pig does not have the same nature as a rose. They're of different species, different varieties, different natures. But when I had a... Well, I had two boys. When I had these boys, they didn't come out like toads or cows or pigs. They They were like me. They shared my nature. When the Bible says that Jesus will be the Son of the Most High, it's saying that He will be one like God. He will share the very nature of God. He will be deity. He will have... These attributes that only God possesses, He will possess them Himself because He will be God in human flesh. Hebrews 1.3 tells us, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Notice that. The exact. Now that doesn't leave us any room for variance, does it? Exact. <laughs> representation of whose nature? God's nature. Here's Je- If you look at Jesus, it's like looking at God in the mirror. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. God in human flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what the incarnation is about. God has visited His planet. And so here the angel is telling Mary, you're not only going to have a true son, a true human being, a true man, you are going to bear the son of the Most High. He will be the son of God himself. So the person of Christ is displayed. But not only that, the work of Christ is displayed. And the work of Christ comes to us in three parts. His righteous life, his saving death, and his glorious reign. First of all, his righteous life. He says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Notice that expression? The Holy Child. There has never, ever been any other child born into this world that could be given that title. The Holy Child. I mean, think about your own kids. I don't care how beautiful and cuddly and sweet they are. You can't call them the holy child. (laughs) Can you? Think about Jesus. Mary never had to say to Jesus, Jesus, stop teasing your brother. Jesus, why didn't you pick up your room when I told you to? Jesus, change your attitude or you're going to get a spanking. There was nothing of that. I mean, we can't even imagine this, can we, as parents? Having a perfect kid who always did what you told them to do, always with a cheerful disposition, always with respect, always submitting to his father and mother's wishes. But that was who Jesus was. That holy child, righteous, beginning at the moment of conception, enduring through his entire life. The Bible says that he knew no sin. 
The Bible says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus himself could say to the religious leaders of his day, Who among you convicts me of sin? Nobody could, because he was absolute spotless perfection. God incarnate, without the spot or stain of sin at all. So we find here his righteous life. And you know why that's important? Jesus didn't just live his righteous life to kind of show off and say, hey, look what I can do. Jesus lived his righteous life for you and for me. Because we have lived an unrighteous life. And in order for us to appear before God without being incinerated in his holiness and in his wrath, we have to have a righteousness to cover us. And your own is not going to cut it. If you try to appear before God in your own self-righteousness, you will be damned. We must have an alien righteousness. One apart from us. And God in His grace has provided that through Jesus. The righteous deeds that Jesus did while He lived those 33 years are put to your account when you put your faith in Him. We call that justification. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth of the Word of God. In other words, you don't save yourself. You don't add to your salvation. It comes as a gift, a divine gift, this righteousness. Jesus wrought out that righteousness and now God gives it to you when you trust in His Son. So first of all, His righteous life. Secondly, His saving death. His saving death. Look at verse 31. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now from Matthew chapter 1, we know what his name means, don't we? It means Jehovah saves. Now that tells us two things about this son. It tells us his identity. He's Jehovah. Number two, he came on a mission to save. That shouldn't surprise us. Paul says over in 1 Timothy 1.15, uh, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners. That was the mission upon which the Son of God has come. It wasn't to make us healthy. I mean, Jesus did all kinds of other things when he was on the earth. He healed people. He did. He cast out demons. He taught. He preached. He showed works of kindness and compassion. But yet his primary mission was to save sinners from their sins. Jehovah saves. You'll call his name Jehovah saves. And this is talking about his death. It's not only his righteous life that we need. We need his saving death. We need a death that can absorb the wrath of God for our sins. Now because Jesus had no sins of his own, God could justly impute ours to him. And he could justly impute our sins to Christ. And that's what's taking place, this great exchange there at the cross. We call that word in the Bible, we call it propitiation. It's the sacrifice that turns away the holy wrath of God. Jesus in his saving death becomes Jehovah saves. He atones for, he substitutes for those people who put their faith in him. So we have his righteous life, we have his saving death, and then we have his glorious reign described by the angel in verse 32 and 33. He will be great. I love that. Well, how? Well, because he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now here we're told that Jesus himself is going to reign. Not only is he going to be a perfect man, not only is he going to be a suffering God, he's also going to be a glorious king. God the Father is going to give to this one the throne of David. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the prophet said, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now people understand the fulfillment of this prophecy in different ways. Some Christians look at the fulfillment being something that will take place on earth for a thousand years after Jesus returns. I want to, that's, that's a possibility. Good and godly men have a hold to that position. My own position, though, is that Jesus currently, right now, is fulfilling that particular promise. It's a spiritual reign, and he, just as David was a type of Christ, so the throne of David is a typical throne. There is no throne on the earth right now that is the throne of David. It's long gone, disintegrated and gone. So we can't look for a literal throne upon which Jesus is going to sit. I believe what we have here is the fulfillment spoken of in terms of Jesus reigning over his people spiritually from heaven as he's at the right hand of God. And you say, well, Brian, why would you think that? Because of how Peter explains the prophecies that Jesus would receive the throne of David. If we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 29, this is how Peter explains all of this. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, how is it fulfilled? He looked ahead and spoke of what? The millennial kingdom on earth? No. The resurrection of the Christ, he says. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to talk about the ascension of this Christ, who would sit at God's right hand and reign as God's king. So this is how I understand the fulfillment of the promise that was given to uh, Mary, that she would have a son. This son would be a great king. He would inherit the throne of David, which he has, and he's reigning over God's people now. And there'll be a come a day when he comes back again, and that reign will be exercised over a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. So here we are told of the work of Christ, his righteous life, his saving death, and his glorious reign. Number three, Gabriel's explanation. His explanation. Mary has a question. Mary asks him, How can this be since I am a virgin? Now, doesn't that sound similar to the question that Zacharias asked when he was told that he was going to have a son? He said, how can I know this for certain? Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Well, we saw last week that Zacharias asked that question because he wanted a sign. He wanted proof. He didn't believe the word of the the angel. Mary, on the other hand, does believe because we find out in verse 45 when she And Elizabeth meet up. This is what Elizabeth says. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. 
So Mary believed. So this question is not asked out of unbelief. The question comes because she wants to have some clarification. She doesn't understand at all how this could ever happen. I mean, put yourself in her position, ladies. You're 14, 15, 16 years old, and an angel shows up. (laughs) And he says, even though you're a virgin and have never known a man, you're going to have a baby, and the baby's going to be the Son of God. And you okay. (laughs) You know, you don't know how to respond to that, do you? Well, it would be an incredible statement that would be made to you. Mary believed the message, but she just has no inkling at all as to how this this actual promise is going to be fulfilled in her life. And so she asks, can you give me some clarification? Can you help me understand how this could possibly happen? Notice Gabriel's answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's the answer. Now, let me say at the outset, we need to approach this statement with reverence and with fear, giving it the due sense of mystery that it has, and not try to intrude beyond what we're able to understand. It seems to me all we can gather from this statement is that the question is, how can this be? This is how it can be. The Holy Spirit's going to make it happen. That's about it. The power of the Spirit's going to come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And you're going to have give birth to that holy child, which will be called the Son of God. God is going to cause you to become pregnant, even though you've never known a man, and you'll bear the Son of God. There's the explanation. Notice, fourthly, Gabriel's attestation. Verse 34 and 35. Let's take a look and actually read those texts. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, I'm sorry, it's not 34 and 35, it's 36. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, why in the world would this angel all of a sudden switch gears And start talking about somebody else who's going to have another baby. This has nothing to do with her having a baby. So why would he do that? I believe the reason is is simple and it's beautiful. Because, now, now notice this. When Zacharias did not believe the promise of the angel and asked for a sign, no sign was given to him, right? Well, there was a sign, but it was muteness and deafness. Sort of a negative sign. Here, Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but a sign is given to her anyway. And here's the sign. Your relative, Elizabeth, is pregnant. She's in her sixth month. In fact, when you go to see her, you'll find out. She'll be showing. (laughs) She's in her sixth month. And when you go and talk to her and find out that she's actually in her sixth month of pregnancy, you're going to know that I told you the truth about about the child that you're going to bear. So this was a a confirming, a testing sign to bolster her faith that she, in fact, would be the mother of the Messiah, the Son of the Holy God. So the angel comes, and, and in grace and in kindness, he gives her a sign that she would be the one that would bear the Christ child. Now finally, let's notice Mary's resignation, the conclusion to the whole story. Verse 38. 
And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There's two things here. Mary realized she was the Lord's slave, number one. And Mary resigned herself to the Lord's will, number two. She said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. That was her self-identity. I am the bondslave of the Lord. How many rights does a bondslave have? Zero. Zip. A bondslave exists to do the will of his or her master. And that's the beautiful, humble position that Mary took when the angel gave her this message. I'm just the bondslave. I think this verse would rebuke those who talk about commanding God to do this or that for them. How audacious. It makes me cringe to think of someone saying, I command you, God, to do this or do that. But there are people in so-called Christian circles telling us that that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to name it and command God to do it. Not so. We take the humble, supplicant position of a Mary. Behold the bondslave of the Lord. And then she says, May it be done to me according to your word. I want to let the force of this land on you this morning. We, we say, okay, big deal. May it be done to me according to your word. She agreed. Why was that special? That was special for three reasons. It was special because she's putting her reputation at risk, her marriage at risk, and her life at risk. First, her reputation. She starts to show, and she's not married yet. What are people going to say? She's been fooling around. Look, she's a fornicator. She's not a pure, chaste woman. So her reputation was at risk. Secondly, her marriage. She's going to start to show, and Joseph's going to say, Mary, I I thought you were faithful to me. What have you been doing? He's not going to understand how she could possibly be pregnant. In fact, that is what happened, isn't it? Uh, Joseph was going to divorce her until the angel appeared to him and told him the truth about what had happened. So she was willing to put her most cherished relationship in the world at risk for the sake of doing the will of God. Are we willing to make that kind of risk? I have known many, many Christians that they're willing to follow Christ up to a point, but when it comes to putting their most cherished relationships on the altar, at that point, they fail. And thirdly, she was willing to put her life on the line because Deuteronomy chapter 22 says that if a girl committed fornication while she was betrothed, that she was to be stoned along with her partner. Now, I... At this particular time in Israel, they probably were not enforcing that particular law. But they could. That's the point. They could enforce that law. She was willing, if need be, to die in order to do the will of God. In a sense. Of course, she couldn't die and then do the will of God. But you understand what I mean. So she puts her reputation, her marriage, and her life on the line. And she says, be it done to me according to your word, O Lord. I'm just your bond slave. Have your way in my life. I want to draw out some application for you folks today from this. And you say, well, what, what can we possibly apply from this? We're not Mary and we're not going to bring the Son of God into the world. There's a wonderful scripture that we find in Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. There's a crowd of people and Jesus is teaching. 
And it says in Luke eleven twenty seven, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed is Mary. Blessed are the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus says, no, no, on the contrary. Let me tell you who is truly blessed. Those who hear the word of God and do it. Folks, do you know how blessed you are? You say, boy, Mary was so blessed. She had this physical connection to Jesus. Folks, you have an even deeper, tighter, closer connection to Jesus. It's a spiritual one. Do you hear the word of God and observe it? Jesus says you are more blessed than Mary was. In addition to that, we have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.19 saying this, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that wonderful? Christ is being formed in us. Colossians says that Jesus is in us. He's the hope of glory. Christ in you. Ephesians 3.17 talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. So Christ is being formed in us. He's in us. He's dwelling in our hearts. Just as the physical presence of Jesus was in the womb of Mary, so the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ is in you if you're a Christian. Being formed in you, it is in you. It's dwelling in your heart through faith. Folks, do you know that the Christian life is a supernatural life? How else could we explain the Creator God coming down, becoming a man, Dying, rising again, ascending to heaven, and then coming to dwell in you through faith. The very life of Jesus is in his people. It's a supernatural life. We don't live a a, a natural life. Can you explain anything other than supernatural to to have God himself living in people? That's how we are able to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Because God is in us. We don't have that ability apart from God. It's a supernatural, miraculous evidence of the life of God living within His people. So we are even more privileged than Mary, according to Jesus. And though we don't have the physical presence of Jesus in us, we have His spiritual presence being formed in us. We need to prize the living presence of Christ who dwells within us. Do you prize that? Do you cherish the fact that the Spirit of God is in you? And that He manifests Himself to others through righteous, godly character and spiritual gifts of various sorts? That's what God is doing. And I want you to prize that and to cherish that and to hear the Word of God and do it and prove that you are a true child of Abraham today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this rich instruction to us. Thank you for the promise that Jesus Christ not only dwelt physically in Mary, but dwelt spiritually in all of his children. Lord, we glory in the person of Christ, true man, true God. We glory in his perfect work, his righteous life-saving death and glorious reign. And we, in our hearts, bow and worship the King of Kings 
Savior of sinners, Lord of lords. Receive our worship, O Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.